hear this story and you'll also be gaining knowledge when you listen to it on how to do these things. I realized that like my concern was really just what people were going to think of my decision and oh my god she's crazy what is she doing she's not you know she's supposed to be pursuing a career this is when she's supposed to be finding a job and I that doesn't appeal to me that never appealed to me. Play a major role in spreading the love and the joy and uh, reducing our imprint you know for for future generations and for all that we share this planet with. I was just embarrassed. I felt like I couldn't do it, like I'd already failed. I had no idea what I was doing. What did I get myself into? What was I thinking? Our history of humanity really revolves around great people. And that's, that's all we know about. And why is that? Because the insignificant people weren't important enough that somebody would take the time to document their life. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Kay Otto, and you're listening to The Unruly Podcast. Today I am coming to you from a cold, very, very cold, dark, gloomy day in North Carolina. I'm at home and there is literally snow on the window beside me, which I was not expecting this morning. We are definitely moving into our slow season here where it is time to rest, and that means heating up the wood stove, drawing a lot of water for tea, and staying in and snacking. And yes, that was our rabbit Bilbo Baggins eating some veggies. The thing I love about podcasts is that I can be traveling or I can be at home and I can interview guests from all over the world. And you can listen to these important, fun, uh, inspiring, compelling interesting conversations no matter where you are. So maybe some of you are on the beach right now, or maybe you're hiking or out walking your dog, or you're like me, cozy in your house. The important thing is that it brings us all together a little bit more when the world is so big. Like I said, today I'm back home in North Carolina, and I got back from the UK recently, so I still urge you to go and check out my two-week guide to traveling through England and Wales. It is vegan and queer-friendly, so I will put the link in the show notes. But the guest that I interviewed today, Robbie Lockie, is located in the UK. My interview with them was really, really nice. We traverse all different topics, so I'm really excited to get into that here soon. My interview with them does touch on animal rights and veganism, and this is my reminder to you that the Unruly Travel blog is transforming into Unruly Travel and Living. So that means that there are sections, uh, six sections, that highlight topics that are really important to me, and topics that all intersect with travel, and one of those is veganism and our relationship to other animals. I already have multiple podcast episodes traversing different topics when it comes to our relationship with animals, such as eating animals, riding horses, bringing activism to the workplace, the sentience of fish and ocean life, and more. Additionally, on my blog, I've written some new, really informative, detailed blog posts and updated some old guides for you as well. So please go to unrulytravel.com, and on the homepage, you can click on the Unruly Eating and Veganism tab. 
In the veganism section, you will find, of course, a lot of uh, guides to traveling vegan in specific locations, but you will also find some cornerstone content such as how to eat plant-based while you're traveling, how to eat plant-based at non-vegan restaurants no matter where you are in the world, why you should go vegan and how to do so, and this is a really comprehensive post. We dive into some important questions like what about honey? What about backyard eggs? Is there such a thing as humane meat? What about grass-fed beef? Is that better for the environment? So not only is it great for beginners, but it's awesome for vegans who want to learn more and have a more dynamic intersectional view of veganism and plant-based diets. In that section, you'll also be able to dive into more conversations about our use of animals, like why is fishing so bad? Are zoos bad? Are safaris ethical? And then there are two different stories where I got arrested, one at SeaWorld and two at the largest slaughterhouse in the world, Smithfield, that, well, it used to be the largest slaughterhouse, <laughs> now it's just one of them, located in North Carolina. You could read both of those stories of me getting arrested and learn why I would do it all over again if I could. As 2023 approaches, I have some exciting travel coming up. I will be going to Ecuador for over a month, visiting New York City, and I'm sure some other things will come up as well. During that time, I'll be sharing more podcast episodes, of course, and I am looking for new sponsors for 2023. So if that's you or you have a brand connection or recommendation that you think I should check out, please email me at hellounrulytravel at gmail.com. Thank you so much for being here, so much for listening. Let's get into today's episode. Here we go. Well, good morning, Robbie. Well, it's my morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the Unruly podcast. I am so excited to have you here, and I have some questions about gender and animal rights and journalism for you. So, yeah, I'm excited to, to talk to you. My pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah. Can you hear me nice and clearly? Is it all good? It's all good right over here. Good good to hear. Yes. So I'd like to start out the show with, well, you, it's a random question, but I realized this morning when I was on my little run that I'm really just asking people questions that I like to ask them as a child. You know, just very simple, basic questions that help us get to know you. So my question, very profound, get ready for it, for you this morning is, what is your favorite type of pizza? My favorite type of pizza, well, since I'm now gluten-free and vegan, it's always a bit of a challenge getting a decent pizza, but recently I went to a restaurant in North London, they're a gluten-free pizza place, and they had the most delicious pizza crust, that sort of like soft and fluffy Italian pizza crust with a really nice creamy cheese, mm. um, a basil, or basil as Americans call it, <laughs> um, and uh, some um, green uh, pesto with some pine nuts, and some uh, rocket or arugula, as you as y'all call it, uh, <laughs> on top. Maybe with some sun-dried tomatoes. That's my favorite kind of pizza. Wow, my favorite thing is that you just said y'all. <laughs> y'all. <laughs> y'all love your pizzas. <laughs> That's <laughs> so press. good. That's my American accent for you. That was that was so great. You know, when I was in the UK, I was asking people to do American accents, just, you know, we were, we were trading our accents for fun to I see how it I love doing accents, I find it so much fun. <laughs> so thank you for doing that, that, that made my morning, Fine. especially because I feel like y'all is so underrated, I always said that I'd never say it before I moved to the south, because I was like, ugh, 
that's yeah. like cringy, but then it became so gender inclusive that I just was like, yeah, I'll say it. that's why I love using it because I think people say, you know, the people say you guys a lot. Yes. Obviously, guys is a very gendered word. Obviously, guys does all tr- like traditionally colloquially mean um, people, um, but I think you know the less gendered our words, the better. I think, but we'll we'll get into that. I'm sure. Yeah, we can, uh, totally. It totally agree with you. I'm on a crusade when everyone's saying you guys. I'm like y'all, y'all, you all. <laughs> let's 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 do it. <laughs> all right. So I wanted to start with uh, your childhood because I was. Uh, researching that you lived in a farm in Zimbabwe and I just love to hear what that was like growing up and what your relationship to animals started like on that farm yeah it's a great question I've asked myself this a lot like how was my relationship with animals and trying to compare that in the moment I switched to plant-based diet but um yeah, I had, a, I had a great relationship with animals, except the geese that always used to chase me when I came home from school. I was absolutely terrified of the geese. Uh, they would hiss. And, and, but I had, we had dogs and cats, and I had a pet mouse, or well, not mouse, a rat. Mm-hmm. Um, we had chickens. We had horses. We had sheep. So, you know, I was completely surrounded by animals my whole life. Um, uh, did I say cats? I think I did say cats. Yeah. The cats were my favorite. Um, I absolutely adore cats. I, I always have. Yeah. Um, they've always been my favorite kind of companion animal. Um, but yeah, I was really blessed uh, by having so many animals in my life since I was a child and really sort of loving loving all of them. Hmm. Can you talk about your rat a little more? Because I feel like people get so turned off when they hear mice or rats. And I just feel yeah. like they're just cute little people. I mean... They are. They're, they're highly intelligent, um, very social creatures, and also very clean as well. They like to live in a clean environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll find cats a lot like rats. Rats a lot like cats clean themselves regular, regularly, rigorously. Uh, I think rats have been associated with a lot of disease in human culture because you know they've lived alongside us really for all of modern human history, and rats can be found in every part of every city you're not you're never more than a few feet away from a rat in a city mm-hmm. um but you know they live in dirty environments because really you know humans have created such dirty environments so rats live within them they're opportunistic creatures so they they exist um alongside us because you know they are able to live off the scraps of humanity a lot like sort of foxes as well mm-hmm. foxes are seen as vermin rats are seen as vermin but you know when these creatures are allowed and given the opportunity to live in a healthy environment, they really are beautiful creatures, you know, they're very gentle and um, and sort of self-aware, you know, I've, my rat used to do all kinds of fun things and I used to make, make little fun like uh, tracks that he could run along and um, yeah, he was just a very social creature. Unfortunately, you know, they don't live very long as as animals um, and it's a bit heartbreaking to, to have a companion animal that does only live a few years, you get very close to them have a strong bond. I think they only live for about five years. That's the mm-hmm. maximum lifespan. So it's a bit heartbreaking. In that in that instance, I don't think I'd ever sort of you know have a, a companion rat again because it's it's a very, very difficult to to do that. And also, I think it's you know people breed breed these animals into existence. I'd, I'd rather not be supporting that kind of trade. But yeah, yeah, sure. I, I loved my rat. His name was Mushroom. Mushroom. <laughs> I love that's such a good name. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Even though I don't think you were like vegan as a child or when you probably no. had this rat. That's such a vegan name for a rat. I know, isn't it? <laughs> I know. It's so true. Yeah, I had no idea really. I think I often ask myself this a lot. Like why 
why didn't I make the connection? I was surrounded by so many animals mm-hmm. um, and had so many sort of like very sweet creatures around me all the time, chickens, geese, sheep, as I said. Um, I didn't make that connection. Um, I need to speak to my mum actually and ask her, did I ever ask where does chicken come from? Where does pork come from? Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure if I've ever wondered this. Yeah, you know, I I feel like a lot of us as children, because I also grew up with a lot of animals, and my grandparents had a farm, and uh, it didn't hit me one day, I think, till we were on the subway, and I saw, like, a pita leaflet or something, and I was like, Mom, it was like, in fifth grade, like, Mom, is this, like, true that we kill the the chickens? That's what we're eating? And she's like, yeah? And I was like, oh, I'm out, you know, tap out, not not for me anymore, so. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think action sometimes we just don't yeah we don't realize if no one tells us so thank you for sharing that and dispelling some myths about rats as well um absolutely i kind of want to skip forward because i feel like you've just had such an interesting history in life especially to get to where you are now because i learned that in the 2000s you were working for some big brands in digital design like shell oil and coca-cola can you tell us Kind of how you how you got into that, and then what exactly you were doing for these companies. Um, yeah, so 1999, I started as a digital designer, as a junior digital designer in an agency in Zimbabwe. Um, it was a an internal agency that belonged to uh, an online media company, a sort of guard. They liked a bit like the Guardian. Uh, they had like a digital team, and so I started to you know uh, started I guess my internship, my apprenticeship, more like on uh, digital design creation of digital content back in 1999, so a long time ago. Um, and yeah, I was just really blown away and amazed by the potential of the internet. I knew it was going to be something that would bring people together and interconnect the world in ways that we've never seen before. There's actually a, a newspaper clipping from me from 1998 talking about this. I wish I hadn't lost it. Maybe it's, I need to find it, but it's me talking about the internet and I kind of, you know, I still see myself as a bit of a futurist when it comes to technology, and I definitely foresaw the internet turning into what it is today. I definitely felt I foresaw social media and the way the world connects the way it does today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went on to move to the UK in 1998. Um, um, actually, no, I start. When was that? And it was before 1999, so it would have been 1996. Maybe I was at Samara Services. It was called, but. Came to the UK, I think around 98, 99, uh, so long ago, I always always forget the dates, I do apologise. <laughs> uh, my concept of time, especially after the pandemic as well, has been slightly skewed. But, yeah. um, I came right around 1999 and started working in agencies as a junior designer. Um, I actually didn't have any qualifications in the, in the industry, but people just said to me, you know, all you need to do is get a portfolio and just apply and go for interviews and, and really try and work your way into these companies, which I did. Uh, and I got into some, you know, quite good agencies and learned, learned uh, all the skills I needed, trained, t- taught myself Photoshop, InDesign, Premiere Pro, all these different tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just found my way up through the ranks and eventually became a, a senior designer. I'm a senior digital designer, and I worked on things like jamieoliver.com, Getty Images, um, all kinds of different brands, um, and that was really a fantastic experience. Yeah, of course, I also worked on some brands like Shell Oil, which was sort of some promotional media, online media type stuff. Uh, and you know, at the time, I did question the ethics of working for those companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, 
looking back, if I knew what I knew now, I definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't be working for companies like Shell. But yeah, I, I kind of moved up through the ranks and, and eventually became a digital creative director, uh, overseeing um, the online media experiences, digital media experiences for BMW, uh, you know, car showrooms and things like that, all very corporate. Um, but yeah, it was great to be part of a team. Uh, one of my favorite things was you know, collaborating and building and making and creating things um, it was a very well-paid job. But at the same time, it was just a little, how shall I say, soulless. I didn't really have much purpose and much mm-hmm. sort of function in that sense. I didn't feel like I was really giving back to the world. I was earning a good salary, you know, working with some nice people. But, you know, more uh, other than that, I didn't really feel much fulfillment in, in that work. So, yeah, that's the sort of, you know, the brief overview of how I ended up in that place. But it was really because I just always wanted to be a designer. I always wanted to to create and, and build content. And I mean, actually, to be really, really frank, I, I didn't want to be a digital designer. I actually always wanted to be a graphic designer. Yeah. But because I had some sort of ta- technical abilities, I found myself getting sucked into the digital side of things, which was a little more technical. Uh, it did actually pay more, thankfully, but I really just wanted to be a graphic designer. I wanted to do photo retouching and, you know, illustration and uh, typography and stuff, but I just didn't really get into that. I kind of ended up on all the website and digital stuff, which is good for me now because, you know, that really helped me build PBN and do the things uh, I've done today. So, yeah, it was probably a blessing in disguise, as they say. Yeah, definitely. Do you ever dabble in that now, just be, just for fun? like The design side of things? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, I'm working, we'll talk about AI art in a bit, but um, if you want, but I uh, have been experimenting with AI art using artificial intelligence to generate images and create portraits. Um, I'm fancying myself as a bit of an AI portrait artist now, um, (laughs) which does require a fair bit of Photoshop. So I do lots of sort of retouching of the images and work on the eyes and add freckles and, you know, add smiles and things. Yeah. I do love portraiture. I've always loved the human face um, and, you know, photo retouching and using design and photo retouching to sort of enhance, you know, um, photography is is great. It's such a therapeutic thing, sitting down for hours and working on a, on an image, you know, color correcting and, you know, removing clouds or, you know, photoshopping out extra people in the background, all yeah. that kind of stuff. It's, it's so much fun. Wow, I didn't I didn't know that about you. So that that's great to learn. And uh, what do you think you like about like the human face? Like focusing on what draws you to that? The face is such an interesting uh, part of the human body, just because it tell it tells such an interesting story. It's got uh, you know the, a lot of uh, clues about the ancestry of a person, where they come from. You know, we're tribal creatures. Um, we do live in a globalized society now, but for the most part, you know, we do come from originally come from various tribes around the world and those tribes obviously have coalesced in different cultures and countries mm-hmm. um, and then there's obviously the variety all the different eye colors the different nose shapes the different hair colors the different you know face shapes um, you know the, the the shape and the proportions of people's eyes people's brows people's lips ears you know what I mean some people have beards some people don't have beards you know what I mean <laughs> freckles there's just so much complexity to the face yeah. um, and uh, yeah I absolutely love it I think it's such a fascinating thing lately I've been looking a lot I don't know why it's caught my attention how the two sides of our face can look completely different uh, yeah when you cover that's something I've been noticing in people so that's been that's been interesting yeah me. I mean tra- traditional beauty standards are actually based on symmetry the more sym- symmetrical a face is um, allegedly the more beautiful a face appears mm-hmm. uh, uh, but I think from from my experimentation with uh, face creation 
the more symmetrical a face appears, yes, it appears beautiful, but it f appears also less real as well. Yeah. Real faces are not uh, symmetrical and they're not um, perfectly uh, symmetrical in the sense that they're not fully symmetrical and they're not, they don't have the p perfect symmetry when it comes to, you know, if you have a freckle here, you don't have a freckle here. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, one eyebrow has a has a slight, you know, like my eyebrows missing some hair here. It's not going to be the same on this side. Yeah. But I could create symmetry with makeup or things like that, and it can enhance a face. Yeah. Um, and that's just, I think, it's just mathematics. It's just the way we've evolved as creatures. We see symmetry as beautiful. Yeah, that's very very interesting, and and especially today when I feel like people are trying to break those beauty standards that we've had for so long. I do see a lot of yeah. difference in faces, like from one side yeah. to the other. So that's exciting to yeah. see. Exactly. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, I to get back and follow along your timeline just a little bit. I heard you talk about before a story where you were in a meeting with some people from Coca-Cola and you know, they were just kind of like, oh, we're just, we're just going to target. I think they were talking about targeting kids, if I'm correct. Could you tell us that story and then take us into your transition to starting to get, like, move away from the big corporate companies and go a little bit more into the plant-based world? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in an agency in London. Oh, the agency shall remain unnamed. Um, <laughs> but it was quite agency they were dealing with multi-million pound budgets for things like coca-cola and uh, coca-cola is obviously the parent company but under that is uh, fanta dr pepper and sprite and i was working on a campaign a digital part of a campaign and there was a coca-cola executive at the offices at the time we were working on the campaign we were all sitting around this big table and and the person the exec sort of was you know waffling on about the campaign and then you know started to get increasingly frustrated with the results of the campaign and you know I think sales were down across the board when it came came to uh, that those those various products I think in the UK at the time and sort of slammed his fist on the table banged it like that and said we've got to get this in front of more kids or something like that um, referring to you know really targeting children targeting young people more effectively. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sitting there thinking, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this work? It's not fulfilling. Um, I feel very uh, ethically uh, unsure about being part of an organization or or a brand that is directly aiming uh, their product at children, something that really people shouldn't be drinking at mm -hmm. all, really. Of course, I'm not food shaming anyone here. I love a Dr. Pepper or a Fanta or a Spider <laughs> as much as the next person. But, you know, these, these products are heavily marketed at children, or at least have been historically. The laws have changed mm -hmm. a lot in the UK. Um, but I went actually on to leave that job. I was actually fired from that job. It's one of the only jobs I've ever been fired from yeah. because I was a bit of a, uh, I, I didn't take, I didn't, I didn't like being told what to do. Mm -hmm. I didn't like being told, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. I often would wheel my desk, which was on wheels across the, uh, the office and go and sit with the creative team because I was a digital person, a digital yeah. designer. And, and, but there was the creative team. Those were the graphic designers and the illustrators. Those are the people I wanted to be with. Mm. But the company was, had the, the digital team over here and then the creative team over here. And I kept saying, we need to be working together. We need yeah. to be sitting together, not having this disconnection, right, between the teams. And they didn't like that. They didn't like me coming in and changing the way things were done. And so I was let go from that job. And the, and the person, the, the director who I'd had a, had been arguing with, 
he didn't even have the courage to fire me himself. He sent in another director who was the sort of softer, more gentle one to fire me. And they sat me down and said, Robbie, you're an amazing designer. You're very talented, but we just need a yes man. Wow. We just need a yes man. And I sat there going, wow, this is crazy that I'm being fired from a job, even though I'm really good at what I do. Rather than having dialogue with me and discussion, asking me what I want and how they think that things could be improved and mm-hmm. why I felt the way I felt, they just decided to get rid of me. Um, it almost completely, I mean, it, it knocked my confidence a lot. I felt very um, despondent and just disillusioned after that. But um, mm-hmm. I went on to apply for a job at jamieoliver.com. Mm-hmm as a senior designer um, and did my first interview and didn't think I'd got the job and they invited me back for a second interview and I, and I got it um, and I was there for a while, quite a while and loved it and it really filled me with the, the and what inspired me and working with Jamie, it really inspired me. He's such a kind of um, energetic, magnetic person. He kind of made me think about how I can really use my skills for good. I can mm-hmm. use my skills for social change because, you know, I worked on the schools for dinners campaign um, and all kinds of, uh, you know, TV campaigns that he did to really try and get people to think about food and the importance of food. So that was the that was the beginning. <coughs> Excuse me. That was the beginning of my realization that using my design skills could be a force for good, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, and after that, I did meander around a bit with a bit more corporate work. But uh, shortly after that, when I got back from a trip with the Jamie Oliver team, I decided to set up my own agency called Loverita Studios. Loverita meaning the the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about like creating an agency which shined a light on um, you know social good, social campaigns, and I worked with charities and nonprofits and NGOs uh, involving kind of all kinds of cool things that were just about social change in some way, human rights, uh, the environment, um, ethical banking, things like that. And it was, it was a very rewarding experience. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of started to move fully out of working in the corporate space. Yeah. And then eventually for people who aren't familiar with you, uh, co-founded plant-based news, which is, I mean, a huge, huge media outlet where you talk about plant-based living and, and veganism and animal rights and so many different things. Uh, I'd love to hear from you why you think a platform like that is so impactful because I, also think like as a freelance writer who writes about animal rights issues and things like this, sometimes I will pour my heart and soul into something and then I'll think, ah, did that even do anything? Like, did that change anyone's perspective? Can you tell us from your side how you see that creating change in the world? It's a really great question. So, you know, we set up plant-based news uh, to disrupt the conventional narrative. That's our kind of tagline. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea behind it really is, is that the media, the meat industry, the dairy industry, the egg industry, all these animal product industries are very powerful. They have a lot of money and support and uh, particularly bad in the United States with organizations called front groups. Uh, front groups are um, an organized group of people who are, they masquerade as uh, public interest groups. Mm -hmm. So for those that are listening and are in the US, please check out the Center for Consumer Freedom. This is an organization, a front group created by um, Rick Berman and Associates. It's a big PR company that is paid by the meat industry 
to essentially um, educate people, educate in quotes, mm -hmm. about the benefits of eating animal products. And mm -hmm. of course, also, also uh, create misinformation or more directly disinformation about vegan and plant-based products, as well as vegan charities and, and animal rights charities, mm -hmm. and in, a, in an attempt to essentially slur them, right? right. And today, there doesn't exist, an, well, at the time, there didn't exist an organization that was a counter-narrative to any of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, we had Veg News, but Veg News, um, you know, no, no disrespect to Veg News, but it's very much focused around vegan food and they do some animal rights stuff but it's very much about like lifestyle it's not I, for me from from my perspective it's not a uh, it's it's not a and it's not an organization with journalistic kind of uh um a fo a journalistic focus it's more about mm -hmm. the lifestyle it's a magazine as well so it's it's got that nothing against mums it's got that mum by yeah. you know you know <laughs> totally you know Totally. It, you know, and and it doesn't it doesn't have that um, bold, some some might say a, a touch aggressive attitude because we I feel like we need to be a little bit aggressive towards the animal agriculture industry. We need to speak truth to power mm -hmm. because if we don't, if we if we're always sort of going with a softly softly approach, no one is really hold, holding um, these these powerful organisations accountable and really challenging them. Right. And you know, even though PBN you know, isn't reaching, you know, billions of people, we do, we are reaching millions of people each week through, mostly through social media, and we are creating a counter-narrative. And so, you know, from my perspective, that's the main reason why uh, PBN exists and should continue to exist, because mm -hmm. we have to create a counter-narrative, the animal agriculture industry, because it's so powerful and so uh, ubiquitous in our society. They reach into every aspect of our lives in some way or the other. So there really has to be some kind of, you know, um, additional voice standing up against them. Have you gotten any, like, direct pushback from these industries where they're, like, plant-based news, we see you and, you know, oh, yeah. they're coming after yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> we have, yeah, yeah. So they, um, when, whenever, you know, over the years we've run our uh, World Plant Milk Day campaign mm -hmm. um, and PBN has been described as the uh, vegan propaganda engine um, you know, plant-based propagandists by um, by Dairy UK. They're like the UK's dairy conglomerate. They mm -hmm. they kind of look up to all the dairy in, yeah, industry interests in this country. Oh yeah, I'm sure they're aware of us. I mean, we reach so many people, and and, and actually, I can't prove it, but there's been many attempts to sabotage our website, sabotage our traffic, our SEO. Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely an attempt to try and take us down you know I'm very um, I'm very much focused on security all the time we're always making sure everything is secure at all times mm -hmm. um, anyone who works for the organization it's important that they are secure their social media has got double verification um, yeah we're, we're always a target and something I always remind my team to be very very conscientious conscientious and cautious at all times yeah I think that highlights how um serious this like the work that animal rights activists or plant-based news uh is doing is having an impact because these industries are huge and to see them actually a little like fumbling and a little scared actually shows that i feel like we are making some sort of change in the world 
Yeah, absolutely. We've got to watch our backs. Yeah, yeah. I feel like for new vegans, when they sometimes when they come into the movement, they don't realize like how much is actually going on and and how big of uh, a power dynamic and like a power struggle this seems to be. Um, Definitely, and it, exactly. There's a lot at stake as well. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, our civil liberties, you know, the, for the future of our planet, there's a lot. There's a lot to be concerned about. So it's important that we, um, yeah, that we maintain our our forward movement. Yeah. I have been thinking about grief a lot lately because I feel a lot of grief for the planet, um, for, for humans, for non-humans collectively. I feel like there's, yeah, a lot of grief, especially when I'm on my period. It's like, I feel connected so deeply to the, to all of these different things that it's just so overwhelming. And so for you as someone who, um, you know, has to kind of see these different trends and be focused on this in so many aspects of your life. Do you feel grief? And if so, how do you process that grief? Or do you sit with it? Do you ignore it? What do, what do you do with that? It's a good question. Um, yes, I do feel grief. Uh, I feel a very, very overwhelming sense of sorrow sometimes for the world. Um, I once had a psychedelic experience with uh, psilocybin in Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, where um, my partner and I went to it's it's a uh, it's kind of legal there and and quite widely used and accepted. Um, and I'm a huge proponent. I'm just to add, I'm a huge proponent of psychedelics uh, in a, as a psychological uh, modality for healing trauma. But that's that. a deeper, <laughs> yeah. That's a deeper conversation, and I'm push. I would be personally pushing for legalization or at least decriminalization of of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. But um, so I experienced a very deep and 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 painful sorrow for the world. I witnessed I witnessed the earth through sort of my mind's eye as um, this beautiful forest. I in fact I felt I was the forest, mm-hmm. and I remember standing at the top of I felt I was standing at the top of this huge hill or mountain looking down at this beautiful green green forest which stretched out as far as the eye could see and then it was halfway in the horizon was hit by an ocean it met an ocean that disappeared off into the distance mm-hmm. um and i felt this sort of like, like strange unusual feeling running through my body and i looked down and the, and the and the forest began to die off it was sort of like going brown and the tree the leaves were falling and the trees sort of just hung like sort of you know brown skeletons in the sky mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and, the, and the forest was dying and hit the ocean the ocean went from a bluey sort of aquamarine to sort of just this brown black color uh, and we actually i well we both did we were listening to some sad music but we actually both and i both and we both sobbed my partner and i both sobbed for about six hours mm-hmm. um this, this deep painful sorrow and i and i genuinely feel like i was connected to what what would some call gaia right is the the, mm-hmm. the mother energy that gives life to our planet and i felt an overwhelming sense of sorrow um and i really felt like i really cried every tear that was in me yeah came out. um but it when it when it concluded uh, and i walked on the beach afterwards and it was a full moon beautifully and working on the ocean in the middle of the night with the full moon mm-hmm. i I did have this realization that, you know, grief, grief and sorrow are a part of natural part of life. And whether the beauty and majesty of this world lasts another day or another six centuries, the fact that it has existed at all is um, a gift. Um, and that no matter how long we have, no matter how long the animals have, no matter how long the biosphere has, every single day counts. And that, you know, we need to just be aware of that, that even though we have lost 
you know, a vast majority, the vast majority of the biodiversity on this planet, we've, and we're losing um, forests at an unprecedented rate. And our oceans are, there's a lot of our oceans that's dying off. There's still time. There's still an opportunity to turn things around. And that's why environmentalism, veganism, and, you know, uh, an awareness for what is left is, is, is becomes a fundamental part of our lives. So mm-hmm. we can feel grief and I think we should continue to feel grief, but we need to turn that grief, that sorrow into action. Taking action is a vital part of making real change. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the sort of messages that came to me in a psychedelic experience, and it's very, be- and it's incredibly beautiful, simple is do not surrender to despair mm-hmm. because you know grief and despair are, sisters brothers whatever you want to call them they they are bedfellows and it's very heavy emotions they can drag us down into the depths of sorrow and really disable us and and paralyze us from taking action or doing anything so mm-hmm. the opposite of all of that really is courage mm-hmm. and uh we're learning to pray for courage or meditate for courage or you know focus on courage is an essential part to getting ourselves out of that grief and sorrow kind of pit that we might find ourselves in and you know to find and build courage we can do that through community through spirituality through exercise um through mindfulness you know all of these actions where we're coming back into our bodies we're grounding ourselves Mm -hmm. uh, walking forest bathing you know seeing the beauty and majesty of nature all of these things can act as reminders uh, of of our um of our finite nature and earth's finite nature uh, and so that's the best way, uh, I would say, to deal with grief is to try and really work on the courage within yourself um, to keep moving forward and to keep pushing forward because there is still time. You know, as long as there, is, there are forests left, as long as there are some animals, as long as there's something left, yeah. um, we've still got time. So I just always remember that. I always try and focus on the fact that there's still time that we are. There are still a lot of good people in the world fighting for change. That's that's what keeps me from completely losing my shit. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I could not relate with that more, honestly. That's it's also why I like talking to people to see what they're doing. And, uh, yeah. you know, people who I admire their work, like you or other people I've had on the show, because I'm like, oh, I'm not alone. There's still something, you know, worth moving forward for. Yeah, and we can give others courage, right? You know, the word encouragement has mm-hmm. the word courage in it. And I know it sounds a bit cheesy and cliche, but <laughs> encouragement contains courage. So when we support others and we give them words of, you know, um, encouragement mm-hmm. and, and, and the love and friendship, those things, you know, lifting others up, that gives them, that actually gives them courage. That's yeah. the power of community, right? And that's why we need to support each other and come together uh, and um, and hold um, each other, hold space for each other, because that's the only way we're going to get through the shitstorm that humanity has created for itself. Totally. You know, I I feel like I've said over the years that when I'm with a group of friends, they could get me to do almost anything for better or worse. And I've, you know, cultivated friends that would get me to do things that are, uh, that I would consider good, right? Like sitting in front of a slaughter truck, right? They'll give me courage to do something like that versus something that's, um, you know, maybe not so great, maybe not a great decision for my life. So I totally see how when we come together, we give each other courage. And I think, thank you for making that point. I think that's so important to remember, especially when we've gone through COVID and we've all been so isolated and separated. I haven't felt that that feeling when I'm in a group of people, you know, and they're giving me courage. We're giving each other courage. We're planning things together. 
um, yeah, it really does lift you up out of despair. So I want to remind people that to seek that out if they can, if it's safe for them or when the time feels yeah. right. Ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask friends to spend some time with you, you know, go for a walk with friends, you know, just be in the presence of others can, can make such a huge difference. Yes. And I <laughs> love to circle back a little bit if you're open to it, talking about psilocybin, um, because yeah, the first time that I had ever tried it was when I was uh, went to Europe for the first time. I was in Amsterdam and I, you know, had never tried psilocybin before, but I just kind of wanted to do it by myself, so I got it, sat in a park. Um, yeah, had all these very different profound downloads and I just was like, "Wow, this has been so demonized in my childhood, and it's such a powerful tool of healing." So, I would love to hear how you think that it could be a powerful tool for healing for humanity in general. Um, I'll preface this by saying I am not a medical doctor um, or a psychologist, so any advice or comments <laughs> yeah. I make are purely based on my personal experience. Um, so psilocybin is the act uh, psychoactive component of um, many types of fungi. Um, they they are a fascinating creatures, fungi. They are neither plants nor animals. They live in their own branch in the tree of life. Um, and they actually strangely share many of our genes, many, many of our genes, like, it's mm -hmm. like almost like we're cousins. But that being said, actually, if you really want to go back far enough, we're related to everything on Earth. And that's why we like to use the term Earthlings, because we are actually all Earthlings, humans, animals, fungi and plants. We're all, you know, inhabitants of this beautiful world. Mm -hmm. However, psilocybin, from my perspective, and I highly, highly recommend those who've got Netflix to watch the TV, uh, the Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind. It talks in great detail about the power of psychedelics as a, as I say, as a modality for um, psychological healing. Um, and it actually, you know, going back, I think, in before the 60s, psychologists in the US, before it became a criminal offense to consume it, were using it as part of their regular practice to help people from PTSD, from um, various forms of trauma, um, it was used as a way to really help people uh, deal with it. And what the pervading sort of science currently suggests is that the use of the psychedelic substances allows a person to subjectively witness their trauma in a way that you can't do when you are um, in your sort of regular state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, the theory is, is that, you know, that the psychedelic alters your state of consciousness to the point where you can experience your trauma in a different way rather than it causing you the pain that it does when you are in your regular state it actually allows you to process it very differently um you know i'm not exactly sure of the bio biomechanics bio of, of it but i know that many many people have used it and particularly things like microdosing where you take a very very small amount of it each day over an extended period it's been seen to help with depression chronic anxiety and of course things like PTSD as well. It's also used by people who are feeling a little creatively blocked as well. It can mm -hmm. give you bursts of inspiration um, and it can really sort of help people see a little more clearly when it comes to their creativity and their work. Many artists use it. There's all sorts of urban myths 
I don't know. I don't know if it's an urban myth. It's probably quite quite likely. People using it in Silicon Valley. People like <laughs> Steve Jobs allegedly used it all the time uh, to come up with ideas uh, for new forms of technology. So mm-hmm. I think that these tools, these 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 fungi, uh, unlock parts of us that we don't necessarily feel we have access to in a in a regular state of consciousness. So when mm-hmm. we alter our consciousness. It expands our awareness in all senses of the word, our sight, our smell, our vision, uh, and our conscious awareness and unconscious awareness. So I think it really just is is a a lot like a sort of chemical key that unlocks parts of our brain that um, we never even knew we had. Um, That being said, there's always a warning with these things, like any kind of uh, powerful psychedelic substance. Um, I personally think... People need to be very cautious when using them, and I would recommend if anyone is interested in experimenting with it, you know, try and make sure you do it within, you know, legal parameters, but also ideally with someone who is experienced. And there are actually um, practitioners all over the world that that uh, take people through what, what you might call a, a ceremony or um, a, a ritual. Some might call it a vision quest. Where you have a, you know, you might do it in a in a setting because it, you know, um, the film or the sorry, the TV series um, How to Change Your Mind talks about set and setting, mm-hmm. mindset and setting where you're sitting where you're located is very important. When you go into a psychedelic experience, how you are feeling and thinking at the time is very uh, is is will really help create a conducive environment for healing. You know, mm-hmm. we shouldn't really go into a psychedelic experience having just experienced some kind of trauma. Or perhaps feeling, you know, huge amounts of um, depression. I think it's something that we should be mindful of when we go into an experience like that. And it should also, you know, potentially speak to a doctor as well if you are on something like antidepressants or any kind of like SSR, um, SSRI um, substances that are for your, you know, the serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs mm-hmm. that can also have an effect. So yeah, there's lots of things to consider. I wouldn't want to. I don't want people to feel. I, you know, who are listening, who've never tried it, to feel a sense of uh, dread. There's no one who's ever died from taking these substances. Um, they're not addictive. There's no side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you, the only side effects are after coming off a psychedelic experience is a slight increase in in the way the world looks more c- colourful. Things tend to be a bit more vibrant. Sure. Um, you may feel a bit light and sort of fluffy around the ears, but other than that, there's no side effects. Yeah, it's a fantastic experience, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and I recommend yeah. it. Who's interested in trying to go for it? You, and, and when you're coming down, you might find yourself talking to a tree like I did, but I do that in my normal state anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> it's not you do too feel, different. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, uh, most people experience a sense of oneness with all life. Um, yeah. it, it just. Yeah, I think there's something about that psychedelic experience, about expanding our consciousness and seeing the beauty of all things. Um, it changes people. A lot of people report after having a psychedelic experience that they go vegan, that they, they don't want to eat animals anymore. That's what I was just uh, uh, thinking of. A girl one time, uh, a woman that I was kind of talking to, uh, was interested in veganism. And when I asked her why, it was because she had a psychedelic experience and she said she saw things very clearly. She was like, this is someone else. This is a dead body. And yeah. I just don't want it in my body. Yeah. 
Wow. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing with that. I would also add for people who are listening, um, obviously it's a lot to research and get into, but always trust your intuition in your body. Like if you don't feel ready, then go with that. When you're feeling ready, like that's something to pay attention to. Definitely don't rush into things like that. It's, and it shouldn't be seen as a recreational thing. I think someone asked me the other day, like if I don't have any trauma or anything to resolve, do I really need to, to enjoy a psychedelic experience? And I would say, you know, doing it at least once in your life to experience the, an altered state of consciousness mm-hmm. um, is something that could be a positive, but you don't necessarily want to just do it for fun. I think it shouldn't be seen that way. It's not a toy. Right. Uh, it's a powerful tool for learning and growth. Yeah. Right. So uh, there, I feel like a lot of people, when they first take them, maybe are really young and they're taking them and going to a concert, uh, something like that where it's being used as a toy. But if you really sit down with it um, and use it intentionally, I think it can be really powerful too. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you for diving into that with me. <laughs> um, that's always exciting to hear people talking about that and just normalizing that into, you know, everyday experiences and as a way of healing that mainstream society is not talking about. Um, so a couple, a couple things. I wanted to switch gears and talk to you about gender a little bit uh, because I know that you are non-binary um, I am as well, and I'm wondering what type of messages you got about gender as a child in Zimbabwe, uh, because in our childhood we all get different messages about gender that we carry with us into adulthood, and then, you know, as you, I don't know, when along your journey you became aware of gender and kind of tapped into who you are, but I would love to hear more about that. Mm, yeah, well, it's a big subject, isn't it? Yeah. Um <sighs> Where to even begin? Gender is such, an, uh, such a, a mystery f- for most people in our world, but at the same time, it also appears very binary. Mm-hmm. Um, there are men and women, nothing else. Um, the masculine and the feminine and nothing else. There's nothing in between according to our society. As a child, I was given all the usual cliche uh, messages about being a man, about being masculine, boys don't cry. Um, my mother was always very gentle with me and allowed me to be me, but you know, my dad and my peers were always very expectant that I behaved in a specific way, I talked in a specific way, um, and, you know, that part of my culture growing up in Zimbabwe, which was a British colony, so very sort of traditional British values always reinforced those stereotypes within me. And it was really only, I guess, um, a few years ago, so I'm 43 now, so only a few years ago that I started to realise that um, my gender wasn't quite as comfortable as it as it as it was given to me as in like my assigned sex and my gender felt like it was out of alignment um you know i've talked to a lot of people and kind of come to the realization that you know you've got like cisgendered people here non-binary people here and transgender people here it's a scale right Mm -hmm. and it and it and it it is a it is sort of like you know cisgendered people their gender and their assigned sex is in alignment you have non-binary people in the middle who are sort of a bit a swing of it. It's not a you know it's not a specific thing because some non-binary people feel very different to other non-binary people, yeah. and then you have transgender people whose align as assigned sex and their gender is totally out of alignment. It's, it's almost it's mostly op- essentially opposite, mm-hmm. and so they they get very strong senses of gender dysphoria. 
So their gender and sex are out of alignment. So this is why they feel uh, disembodied. They feel like their bodies don't match their their how they feel as people on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I learned more about you know sex and gender and gender expression and how all these different layers are essentially what make us as people. And and diff- the different layers are um, acquired in different ways. Some are gen- genetics and biology. Others are societal. And I felt less and less comfortable with the idea of being referred to as he and being seen as a mas- masculine creature. Though I present very masculine, I've got a beard and, you know, I have a masculine body. I don't feel like that on the inside. If I could paint a picture of who I really look like, mm-hmm. I'd be very slim and tall and, and quite, you know, and I don't know what height has got to do with it, but I imagine being quite tall <laughs> and slim, very androgynous looking, no beard. Um, and you know, one of those kind of people where you're not sure whether they're male or female, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't really tell. That's how I feel as a person on the inside, but I've been given a body that is very masculine presenting and I've just learned to just accept it. Cause I, I don't want to have to constantly be trying to change myself physically, mm-hmm. but I do get feelings of gender dysphoria. Occasionally I do feel this sort of like, sometimes I look at myself and I don't feel it things don't feel right, but it's not strong enough for me to want to feel like I want to switch my my physical physicality you know what I mean mm-hmm. have a gender reassignment surgery um and it's just very subtle and very very sort of gentle gentle I don't actually get to speak to many people about gender and I certainly don't have very I, I think I have one other than yourself one other non-binary friend mm-hmm. um and we we have talked at length about this and um they slash he also he, he's fine to be just referred to as he and or they he um doesn't uh really hasn't really explored it like I haven't either. And it's a bit of a journey, isn't it? We're really trying to understand who we are as people. Um, And this is where the language comes in, right? He, he, she, they, them. Um, Recently, I had a friend who I've only been recently getting to know. And she referred to me as he, him in in several emails. And I thought, should I say something? Shouldn't I say something? You know, I don't want to make a big deal. I don't want to make a drama out of this. It doesn't really matter. But I thought to myself, well... I need to advocate for this. I think that it's important that people like us are, are more visible. And so if a good friend of mine isn't aware of this and won't acknowledge this, then why would anyone else? So I wrote her an email back and I just said, or I sent her a message said, look, hope you don't mind me saying, but I prefer you use my pronouns, they, them, rather than he, him. Mm-hmm. And rather than saying, oh, thank you very much for letting me know and not making a big deal about it, she just went, oh, honey, just live your life. Just live your life. And... I kind of was a bit taken back by that, a little bit sort of disappointed that she didn't just acknowledge what I'd said, but sort of came back with a sort of, it's not a big deal, don't make such a big deal, it's just a pronoun, you know? And it's so much more than that, like it's not about the pronouns, like I think most of the time misgendering people at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big deal, it's about how people see us as people, it's about how the world sees people and not putting them into boxes and stereotyping them mm-hmm. if you're a man if you're man or male then you're going to look like this dress like this act like this talk like this have these jobs women look like this talk like this dress like this have their hair in this style mm-hmm. you know and people are forced into these two binary boxes and young people that grow up that are in between end up feeling very out of place mm-hmm. very um, uncomfortable with who they are because they don't fit in the a or b box or the M or F box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that, you know, for me, this exploration, this awareness, this understanding is about 
trying to create a space for people that are sit in between the M and the F and help us feel comfortable with that and help the world see us. Because, you know, going back like 60, 70 years, gay people had no visibility. Um, mm. Queer people were seen as mentally unwell and that we had something wrong with us. You know, just 40 years ago, it was illegal to be gay in this country, in the United yeah. Kingdom. You would be placed in prison if you were caught in a, in a homosexual relationship. So things have moved on a lot, but there is still a lot to change when it comes to um, non-binary and transgender people. Though I know non-binary sits under the transgender, but it's, um, you know, trans, fully transgendered people, people who are, who are on the way to having gender reassignment surgery or people who've experienced uh, ongoing irregular gender dysphoria. And then obviously people who are non-binary sit in between. The, the world, much of the world still sees us as um, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't see us. Yeah. They think, yeah. They think that we are just you know trend people who are jumping on trends i hear people talk about that oh it's the trendy thing now to be non-binary or to trend no honey it's not trendy it's always been there we just have a word for it now you know what i mean yeah. it's just so that's a sorry for the long answer but no i mean that's why you're here give it give it all to us we want it all <laughs> you know it's a complex thing and and it needs discussion and it needs dialogue it doesn't need what we don't need is oh, come on with this non-binary nonsense. Like, you know, what does that even mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you're clearly a man. So what? Are, why are you referring to yourself in this way? What's the point? Yeah. You're just an attention seeker. You just want attention. You hear this a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've heard that personally too. And I'm thinking, you know, this makes just saying like, hey, these are my pronouns and... Um, you know, like affirming that in front of people, you know, and then people say, you're seeking attention. I'm like, listen, this is uncomfortable for me to say. It makes my life easier in the sense that I'm being more authentic to me. And by saying like, this is me, please recognize that. But it makes my life harder in the sense that I have to, I have to be nervous to bring that up with people. And then it's this whole, you know, it's this whole like draining process sometimes. So I think people think you're jumping on a trend when in reality it's making you, it's, it, it's a draining thing. It's not something that is exactly. fun. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels with being vegan as well, though. Being vegan is not, it's a choice, whereas being non-binary isn't necessarily a choice. Right. Uh, well, you could choose not to be and then you could hide yourself. But, yeah. you know, when we first go vegan, we don't want to say, we don't want to say anything. We want to keep it a secret because sure. we don't want to rock the boat. Um, and then people we say we're vegan and then people attack us and they say you're an attention seeker You're just doing this because you want to be different I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do I'm doing this because I do not believe in the mass incarceration the torture of animals mm -hmm. So, you know if I wanted to do the easy thing I'd be doing what you're doing and eating animals right. and continue <laughs> right. to maintain the status quo Right, you know, so it's uh, there's a lot of parallels between being a queer person a non-binary person and a trans person with being vegan there are the similarities with that identity of being different and standing up for something that is uh, a social justice um, imperative in our society. You know, veganism is a social justice movement. You know, being the LGBTQ plus I movement is a social justice movement. It's about standing up for people that are seen as different but are just as visible and just as important and just as um, deserve the rights as for. Of, for for what's the word acknowledgement as as everybody else yeah so it's a constant source of kind of confusion for me because i always wonder you know how much should i say how much should i push this you know yeah i you know my friend uh charlie who's been on this podcast is a trans vegan 
and well, my, one of my best friends, and uh, they're always on me, like in a loving way. Like you need to stand up for your pronouns. One because it's it's for you, and two because it makes it easier for everyone else who has a harder time than you. Um, yeah. For trans people, <laughs> you know, for other people, because yeah, I look very feminine, whatever that means, and so um, I could just pass as like a cisgendered straight person all the time, which is how how people think of me. But like you. When you said that, that totally clicked for me. Like, I feel like if I painted a picture of myself, I would look very androgynous. You wouldn't be able to tell. And that's how I would like it. Um, but like you, I also don't feel strong enough yet to, like, change uh, physicality, you know, things with my body or do makeup or things like that um, because I just don't put a lot of time into my looks most of the time. But, uh, yeah, I think I think... That well, one. I'm sorry that that happened to you. That you got that sort of response because I think a lot of people think that yeah, that people who um, stand up for their pronouns are very sensitive and that that's a bad thing. When in reality, it's just saying like, hey, I am showing you who I am, and I want it to be normalized for other people. So yeah, and exactly, and like at the animal rights conference that I went to this last week, someone came over to me uh, after having a conversation with me uh, the hour before, came over and said, I just wanted to apologize for misgendering, misgendering you in the conversation. And I was so touched by that. She came all the way from wherever she was to talk to me and say, mm -hmm. I apologize and uh, um, I absolutely see you mm -hmm. and acknowledge you as, as non-binary and um you know, please do correct me in future if I ever misgender you. And I was so touched by that. And she didn't need to do that. She didn't have to do that. She could have just forgotten about it and, and, and not acknowledged it. But the fact that she came all the way to me and acknowledged that meant a lot. And it, and it that's what we want in a society where people see you for who you really are. It's mm -hmm. not about, it's not about us being difficult or trying to change that. You get here that a lot as well. You're just trying to change the language. We've, it's been the same for thousands of years. Why do we want to change the language? Um, you're getting it in France where people are refusing to acknowledge the fact that non-gendered words are important and essential part of language. Mm -hmm. And we've always used them. And, and of course, conservatives in France are biting back, pushing back against the use of non-gendered words in conversation with under the idea or the guys that people are trying to destroy the language oh the liberals are trying to destroy the language i'm like no we just want acknowledgement it's not going to cost you anything uh why does there need to be such a big drama about it it just drives me crazy <laughs> yeah because the language has also always been there it's it's not yeah. something i mean there are new words added but the the language has been there and that's a couple of great points one with your story about the person apologizing i think that's a great lesson for people listening that if you do misgender someone just be like hey sorry i see you uh please yeah and don't make a big deal about it don't yes. get all like oh my god it's so sorry i'm so <laughs> yeah. embarrassed like just say oh i'm sorry you know what i mean yeah. it's 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 a it's a reframing of of a of a you know, of, a, of an identity that previously was one thing and now it's something else, you know, and, right. you know, I think that's the thing. We need to remember that we should never assume a person's gender. When you meet people, don't ever assume their gender. Yeah. Refer to someone as they until you know their gender. For sure. Like, that is how it should be because you do not know what a person is wearing on the inside. <laughs> yes, for sure. That's... The, the, I've, I've realized how important and powerful language is um, when I 
switched in my mind to see everyone as they until they told me differently um, yeah. or until yeah until I learned differently I think that's a powerful practice and I think that people are like Kaylin you're taking it too far but I don't think I am also with non-human animals like people assign gender to them and obviously well they say it it oh my yes yes very soon i'll be writing an article on our, our language towards animals because i just feel like the list is growing that it really drives me bonkers um, isn't it interesting how sometimes babies are referred to as it have you noticed that? yes yeah babies and animals and i'm like are they not living beings like it's a very interesting is it lazy language is it lazy grammar or is it just like a cultural thing that we refer to animal to babies and animals as it i think that it's because people are not giving them personhood yet like when someone's a baby they're not as like you don't see them as a some people don't see them as a full person and then the same with non-humans i think that that's why they say it because i'll never forget when i first became came into the animal rights movement i think i was saying it and my friend at the time he said no it is for toasters and cell phones and chairs. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel a, I feel a meme coming on. I need to put on PBN yeah. and yeah, and it equals toaster. <laughs> exactly. and they equals animal. Yes, please. <laughs> objects. Please, please change. Yeah, that I feel like that's a big change that we need because when you do change your language, you change your mind. And so even for non-human animals, for me, they are they. And then sometimes that'll change when I see different personalities come through, but. We've seen how, also just like how s there is sex of sexism and homophobia in animal agriculture, right? When, yeah. um, you know, like obvious things in the dairy industry, uh, females being exploited for their reproductive system. But then also, which I've realized lately that has really blown my mind is just um, how, you know, animals used in animal agriculture are also forced into heterosexuality, <laughs> even if they're not, because... I, I just feel like at its baseline, nature is queer, and... Yeah, a lot of animals exhibit, thousands of animal species exhibit, um, you know, homosexual uh, behavior. Yeah. So, including, like, sheep, elephants, cows, <laughs> loads of mammals. There's so like, many. Loads of mammals, yeah. So, yeah. It's yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? I think humans have such a myopic view of relationships and gender, it's... Uh, um, and also a very overly simplistic and reductionist view. It's just, I think it's just the society, it's the messages we keep seeing as children. We see this very binary um, representation of gender, sex, gender, sexuality, and mm -hmm. identity. They're all very, like, you know, simplistic in their nature, and that's what we're told we have access to. But actually, you know, humanity has, is, you know, our, some of my friends who are, who are queer say, don't say, spectrum don't say um rainbow whatever it's a galaxy mm -hmm. it's a galaxy of infinite potential the human expression and the human identity is a galaxy it has many many points of 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 uh, of complexity within it um you know it's a it's a network of op opportunity uh, and we should see it that way we should stop seeing it as this sort of like a to b with you know with with a point in the middle yeah. you know we're not in the middle like you know it's like m and f with an nb in the middle like we're not in the middle it's we're all the way over here like we're our own thing we're an evolution of you know we're uh, you know not sound like big-headed but i do feel like we're an evolution of human uh physiology you know mm. and i think same with transgendered people i think it's an evolution of humanity you know i think people see as trans people as being this different thing they're different they're not different they are 
trans people are an evolution. I think that's why it is occurring. That's my philosophy. It's an evolution. It's a change of who we are. Um, we could get in deep into the conversation around like, you know, physical identity and how, you know, I think some people say that trans people, only reason trans people have surgery is because they feel forced to have it mm -hmm. by our society. If a trans woman has full surgery, she feels forced into it because, you know, she feels she could never have a relationship with a man if she still had her male sexual parts, right? Mm -hmm. I think some people feel that. Um, I know some trans women who haven't had surgery and are in relationships with men and feel happy and comfortable to continue to keep their bodies the way they are. That being said, everyone should be free to make the choices that they wish. If they want to have gender reassignment surgery, they should be given the opportunity to do that and, and they should be celebrated for making the choice. Nobody wants to do something like that without really thinking about it. For and then sure. there's the whole conversation about regret. Sometimes people do have these surgeries, they do have regret. But then again, they should also be given the opportunity to take another path rather sure. than the, you know, people around them throwing their hands up in the air going, look, you see, we were right. This whole trans thing is wrong and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Like we're on, we're all on journeys and we should be supporting each other through whatever journey we wish to choose because it's our body. It's our identity. Um, people just should be around us, nourishing us and supporting us and, and giving us um, the love we need rather than, you know, telling us what to do. And, re and Melanie Joy, Dr. Melanie Joy talks about this a lot, like defining other people's realities. Mm -hmm. Oh, I feel, I don't feel right. I don't feel like I fit into my body. I don't feel comfortable with my, my gender. I don't feel comfortable with my sex organs. No, you don't. No, you don't feel like that. Come on. You might, there's, there's just, you're just, you're just traumatized or you're just this, or you've just got mummy issues or you're just daddy issues or whatever. Mm -hmm. Stop defining my reality. That's how I feel. Yeah, you know I mean? for like, sure. Constantly being told by others, oh, no, you don't feel that way. And we get it on micro levels as well. When someone says, I'm really upset, and someone goes, come on, you're not that upset. It's just a dog or, you know, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, people have, do it to us all the time, constantly telling us that we don't feel that way. We don't, we don't, you know, that are undermining our emotions, undermining our feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very, very bad habit. And I think anyone who's listening who is 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 a self-aware person it's just important to be aware of that that we shouldn't define or redefine other people's realities we should listen and we should bring support um and we mm -hmm. should hold space for others rather than sort of telling them or trying to fix right people come to us with their problems or their their traumas rather than trying to fix everything sometimes people just want us to be there to listen to yeah. to sort of show support and it's not always about coming in on your white horse you know with your savor complex um sure. sorry i know that was like several tangents in one but uh <laughs> again we're here for it that's what we want <laughs> beautiful i also think it's a great reminder to people that you can always ask when someone's you know um venting or telling you their feelings about their day or whatever you can always say hey do you want some feedback or do you just want me to listen like that's another practice that we can do uh and i think it's yeah, it's beautiful to listen and, and offer support. And I think that pff, it would just be an easier existence if that was the norm, if that's what people did. So great point. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I could talk to you forever about these different things. Um, but I'd like to end on by asking you if you have any projects coming up that you're really excited about and how can people connect with, you personally and plant-based news if they're excited about that 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my exciting project coming up is a new series that's launching on YouTube. Um, we'll find out more about it soon. But we're kind of focusing on a series of short uh, mini documentaries that focus on debunking big myths. Um, and the first episode, as a little sneak peek, is going to be about soy. Mm. Um, soybeans are a fantastic source of protein for human beings. However, the soybean, the, the sort of humble soybean, has been shrouded with a large amount of um, just BS, if I may use that in the most colloquial Go sense. Go for it. <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, from it'll give you man boobs to it's made of plastic to it contains estrogen to, you know, vegans, tofu is destroying the Amazon. There's so much myth uh, mm -hmm. surrounding the humble soybean. And I felt like it was so important to start with that to try and debunk a lot of that. And we're going to be moving on to lots of other subjects as well. So things that people do in their daily life that has an impact on, on the world around them um, and trying to really like unpack some of the, um, the big myths around some of the foods that we eat or some of the fashion items that we buy. Um, there's a lot of uh, um, awareness building to, to happen, so I'm going to be focusing on that. Um, what else is going on? We are continuing to grow our audience, and I'm spending a lot of time investing a lot of money into our website. Um, I'm trying to build uh, a big enough audience so that we can um, continue to grow uh, our our reach. Mm -hmm. um, we you know, we produce a lot of written content every day, uh, and that requires a lot of time and money to maintain. Uh, and so a lot of my time and energy is going into to effectively monetizing our website, which is not easy. It's a con constant source of stress for me. Yeah. But it's something that I love. Journalism and writing uh, is such a, a big part of my life. I love um, seeing people sharing our articles and educating and, and, and building awareness around the plant-based lifestyle. And, of course, you know, the various animal rights things that are going on around the world um, and just keeping people informed. So that's where I spend the vast majority of my time. And of course, you know, managing the team as well and trying to grow the team is a big part of my, my daily life. But uh, yeah, trying to stay trying to stay confident and focused as well as making sure I maintain some level of creativity, which you can find on my Instagram, uh, which I've created recently where I'm exploring uh, the power of AI art, which is a procedurally generated... Um, um, imagery based on a, a text input. It's a very fascinating technology. You just type what you want and the system generates the image for you. Yeah. So good now that you can actually generate faces that are hyper real. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm making these sort of like synthetic people because as I said earlier, I'm obsessed with faces. So you can check me out <laughs> at just unreal people on Instagram, just unreal people. Okay, awesome. um, and you can find me personally on Instagram at Robbie, R-O-B-B-I-E underscore Lockie, L-O-C-K-I-E. Um, we can connect with me as well in the DMs if you wish. And you can see all my rants about veganism or environmentalism or politics as well, which I'm also very passionate about politics um, for those who may not know. <laughs> Yay. Yes, we want, we want to see it all. So we'll definitely put those uh, links in the show notes to make it easy for for people to find you and, and support your work. and uh, Make the world a better place by leaving things better than I found it. You know, whether it be people or the planet or, you know, all kinds of things. Isn't there a quote that says, feel fear and do it anyways? Yeah. 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 So I think for us insignificance, we have to do it ourselves. A lot of people are doing things in their life that they're not 
completely happy with mm-hmm. and they're doing it just because you know it's a norm and they feel like they feel pressured by society Definitely. or they're just you know stuck in this rut mm-hmm. and you know ruts can be comfortable for people and they can be very comfortable comfort is not how you how you grow as a person <laughs>